Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, second half of the interview with Bob Brill that Rich Klein and I conducted. Again, pretty uh, random in the sense of not being linear, but uh, Bob has done a lot of different things, has some strong opinions, calls it like he sees it, <laughs> and uh, Rich and I enjoyed uh, spending time with Bob. Again, he's done so many different things in the industry. I think you'll find it interesting. I, I actually was, was uh, I lived through it and, uh, and and had a lot of interactions with Bob over the years, and uh, always interesting. And uh, you know, was uh, I hope you'll enjoy this uh, interview that Rich and I did. So, thanks, sponsors: Topps Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Beckett Media, Beckett Rating, Beckett Authentication, Comc.com, and Burbank Sports Cards and Mike Stadium Sports Cards and. Heritage Auctions, and Huggins & Scott Auctions. So thanks, sponsors. Thanks, Bob Brill. Here is the interview, the second half. I think out of all the stuff, I enjoyed every bit of it, and I still do. The thing I enjoyed the most was when I was writing for you, and I loved writing for you, you guys had editors. I wrote a column uh, for you just when it started to go online, and we did this thing called the Great Buy-Sell Experiment. We took five bucks, and we opened a $5 pack. I was Stadium Club or something at the time. And we got a regular Derek Jeter card. And the idea was to see how long it would take if we could get there, that $5 purchase, and turn that into $10,000. So I, we sold that card. I took the money, reinvested it. And it had to be stuff that was involved in the trade. In other words, I couldn't add any extra money. And uh, we ended up trading up to $10,000 in exactly 104 weeks. It took us two years to do it. We had so many cool transactions. A lot of it, some of it, was people would come in with a collection and we had maybe $800. And a guy said his dad died. He didn't want the card set, so his dad collected for him. So he came in and I offered him X amount of dollars. I think I offered him 350. He said, no, that's not enough. He went and shopped it around, came back two days later and said, I'll take the 350. So then we turned that into probably about 1200. And then we would do that and reinvest it all the time. The experiment was face-to-face and it was in your shop. So yeah, what um, eBay, you weren't flipping on eBay. Uh, well, uh, we, we did sell some things on eBay, but not very much. Most of it was in the store. And uh, there were certain things that I couldn't sell in the store that I picked up in these collections that we'd throw on eBay. Nowadays, that's the rage. These young guys go into a show and with successive flipping in the course of a weekend, I don't know they're going from five to 10,000, but they're parlaying, consistently trading up. A kid who used to shop at my store, he was like 12 years old, is now doing videos. His name's Jake Miller. And uh, the videos, he's going to um, do these major trades, 10,000, 12,000, 3,000 cash. And he was at the National. I just watched the one from the National. But uh, Jake started at my store, he and his dad. I heard from his dad, Paul, just the other day and told me about Jake. And, well, this is cool. The other good thing that really happened at my store, if we caught a kid stealing, we'd call the cops. I had no problem. But in Ventura PD, because we were in Ventura, California, had a really good system. They would come out, they'd sit the kid down. We'd call the parents out and the parent would come and the kid usually wouldn't steal again. Well, I had one kid who lived right around the corner from the store. I said, his mom didn't answer the phone. So I sent him home in a police car and she was out in the front yard talking to a neighbor when the police car drives up with her kid in and they didn't, they put their names on a list. So if they have, if it happened again, then they'd get arrested about four years after that. What would have been longer than that? Because the kid was an adult. He came into my store. He said, Mr. Brill. And I said, yeah. And how you doing, Ted? And he says, good. He said, I want to tell you that I'm selling cars now. And uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life is when you sent me home in that police car. (laughs) And it was like, wow, it turned the kid around. And during the Pokemon days, we had a lot because we were known as the easiest store to steal from. But 
we were making so much money, it didn't really matter at that point. It was just nuts. Absolutely crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And now we get the hobby today. It's just, you ask what I'm doing. I'm working in radio. I'm a newscaster at KNX 1070. I work four days a week there. I write my baseball column, which uh, I know Rich follows, called uh, Baseball of the 1960s. I write that every week, which is my favorite era and I think the best era in the last 100 years of baseball and for a lot of reasons. And I broker collections. I'm brokering a collection now and uh, cover the West Coast for uh, Huggins and Scott auctions. I'll, I'll get collections consigned from them. Usually they'll give me a lead and I'll go check it out. And then we'll arrange to have it taken or if they don't want uh, to go somewhere else. But I do a podcast with uh, former NFL quarterback, Eric Kramer. We do a weekly fantasy football podcast on that. And I'm writing. I love baseball. Of course, I, I have the largest Bill Mazeroski collection in the world. I have no doubt. I have some of the most oddball stuff and, and I have every uh, mainstream Maz card in a PSA 8 there is. And I, I still am liquidating a lot of stuff from my store, as well as brokering collections here and there. I'm still involved in the hobby, not quite like I was. Bob, I want to thank you and frustrate you at the same time for the one time I went to your store when I was on a show trip. Bob sent me home at night on the Pacific Coast Highway, <laughs> which is an interesting enough place to drive <laughs> When it's light and you can actually see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, the road just goes like this. And there's no guardrails in most of it. <laughs> I thought you'd go partially PCH and then get off in Lompoc or something and drive up the 101. Not my fault you stayed on the PCH. <laughs> I listened to what you told me. I, it was really a fascinating experience. And then all of a sudden yeah. you get to a six-lane part of it. I'm, I'm glad you made it. Let's put it that way. Yes. As a... Fellow heart attack survivor, how do you want yes. to be remembered in the hobby 20 years from now? You've done a yeah. lot of interesting things. So they're not your epitaph, but Rich and I have had a lot of reminiscences about people that have been contributors mm-hmm. to our industry. You've done a lot of different things. What do you think you're going to be best remembered for? It's funny because at UPI, especially, I was always asking the obit question because I was in charge of the obit files, actually. And believe it or not, I love doing the obituaries. And I, I do that at KNX quite a bit, too. So I love doing the production, the music, and they're clips from their Hollywood careers and stuff. So it's funny that you should turn the tables on me. Okay, I think I probably want to be remembered as someone who was fair, someone who brought something else to the hobby that wasn't there, like with the Brill Report, some hardcore reporting, and also someone who really tried to clean up um, the garbage in our industry because there's bad stuff. This is a great industry. I love this industry. I've had more fun in this industry and I enjoy this more than any other part of working, if you call this work in my life. But there's also a very bad element that's been there and it's called greed. I always said you can always make a bucket in the industry. You can always pay the bills by doing something. There's always something to sell. But the over-the-top greed and behind-the-scenes stuff, I think has just been so bad. But I think I want to be remembered as somebody who tried to clean that up and we spotlighted that stuff in the drill report, which nobody ever did before. Because no other publication would say anything bad because they were advertising dependent. And I wasn't. I was subscription-based. And but you would want to be either the commissioner of the hobby or the czar of the hobby? What would you want to be? <laughs> yeah, I think commissioner would be good. I'll, I'll take that. How would you clean up today? Do you think things are better now than they were, but they're not perfect? What would you do today to hear the commissioner? Jerry Meyer said it best. He said, the industry of the card companies, Major League Baseball in particular, has to decide whether it wants to make collectibles or if it wants to be a retail program that's broad-based and reach kids all over the world. And I think the hobby has survived because of its collectability. We don't see kids going to the corner liquor store or to 
Target or Walmart or anymore to buy a pack of cards. So they'll buy gaming, but they're not buying baseball, football, or basketball cards because cards don't do anything. They sit there and they look at you and you look at them. But the value, which sometimes is considered the bad thing, has also driven the hobby to these kind of crazy heights and made it a, a great place and a great industry because it is a great. And you're one of the guys that made it a great industry. I mean, I know you took key over the years based on the price guide. And I know what you went through. And it was ridiculous that people would accuse you of things that you weren't doing. I, I think you legitimized the hobby into a new era. You helped legitimize it into a business. That was a good thing because it had to survive as a business. I don't think um, it would ever have reached the heights that it has strictly as a hobby. And having fewer card companies, maybe fewer brands, the way it is now is fine. The one thing I would do is I would try to stop card companies from selling directly to the public and charging ridiculous prices. When you have to pay $3,500 or more off the line for a box of trading cards that has 10 cards in it, that's just insanity. There's only a small percentage of people that can afford that. And yet, Bob, we just saw record attendance at the National. If we're driving people out of the hobby, we're doing a bad job. No, I understand that about half of those people were new people. And those yes. new people were hearing news reports about cards selling for $5.2 million or the Uncle Jimmy collection or some of the other collections where people were, were getting mainstream news, very little bit of it and snippets of it, but that's reaching people and they're driven by crazy numbers. But can they afford it? Almost all the showcases there. And you're looking at cards that are ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars of new players. A guy like Zion. Come on, you spend eight hundred thousand dollars on a Zion card, and first game next season he breaks his ankle. You know, where's your eight hundred thousand dollars now? Yeah, totally. But yet, Jim can tell you, I can tell you, we spent a lot of time, and there was a lot of competition at the discount boxes. So there's a lot of people out there. Yes, they're interested because they hear the big thing, and then they say. Let me make this affordable. There are, as you said, your friend Jake, who travels the country and does that trading up, which is wonderful. And if he's utilizing his knowledge of newer cards to buy older cards, that's even better. I don't care if he's trying to do a 57 set. If he's just buying the superstars of 57, I'm okay with that. I'm getting into vintage that way. I know there's a nice kid named Nolan who does that. Another kid, I met a content creator dinner who does the same thing. Hey, Rich, uh, Jake Miller came to our dinner. Cool. He yes. Is. He's a good kid. And uh, I can still see him at the Pack Wars counter with his dad. I wouldn't want these cheap cards. And that was something, the quality of the people at Jim's dinner. And a lot of them, they're looking for new ways to do things. Right. And new ways to do things. I'm a dinosaur. And I admit that. But you're a dinosaur. Jim's a bit of a dinosaur. But we're, but we're always rooting for people to do new things to advance. The hobby always has evolved. I think it was Tony Wakona once said, the hobby will always find a way to survive. Whether it's change or whether it's the history. People ask me all the time, you know, what's selling? What's good? Uh, what should I buy? And I always tell them, I say, look, the best thing to buy is vintage stuff because it's a limited amount, not making any more. You buy new stuff because you enjoy it. And that was always my pitch to people. Buy what you like, because if you like it and it becomes worthless, you probably got 10 of them and you enjoy it. And if it comes worth something, you probably have 10 of them. You could sell nine of them and and actually profit by it. That was always my pitch to people, is to buy what you like. And if it works out, if it doesn't, who cares? Where do you consider yourself around this hobby? How would you like to be remembered? I've tried to do the right thing, and but really blessed to be catching a wave. I had a great team. A lot of things fell into place. The tools, the people, the sports. I look back, and I think one of the biggest events in our corporate history was the baseball strike. 
And that was just a giant negative. It really took a lot of wind out of our sails, but it made us as a company have to get more serious about, we were up to that point, we just were growing. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, we're dependent on the sport. And, and there were so many licensees. It was so complicated. Right. I, I don't say I was too busy working to hear the criticism, but the criticism was a minority. And, and basically, if people want to criticize the podcast, if they say, you've done a few podcasts, I really don't like them. I'm thinking, well, I've done several hundred now. So if you don't like a few, that seems like a pretty good batting average. But I don't even get that. People, they always like the ones with Richie on. So that's not an issue. But it, it's just there's naysayers sometimes. And yeah. it's a small minority. And the, the social media makes that easier. But I look at the things you've done. You've put a lot of irons in the fire. And most of them have worked and have worked for a while. But most things don't work forever. I've now been out of it of the full time. I sold the company 16 and a half years ago. Wow. So there ought to be a statute of limitations on hostility. <laughs> <laughs> and there probably is. So now I'm just the old guy that goes around and has fun and getting a lot of energy out of these young guys. I'm never going to have a store. You're right. brave to do that. I, I don't have the personality to do that. But Going to a few shows, doing some of these dinners. Rich has been great to work with as a compatriot. Life is good. The hobby's never been more on fire. I just hope it's a healthy fire and not something that's going to burn a lot of people. And like Rich says, there needs to be a full appreciation of the ecosystem of not just the expensive cards, all the way up and down the line. And I, I think we saw that. Would you agree, Rich? I think we saw that at the National. Oh, we saw that at the National. We saw it from the big spenders, as I said, to the to the bottom feeders and every group was well represented. And I heard just about every dealer I spoke to glowing with how they did. Even Levi was telling me just stunned with some of the prices he was getting for his cards. Well, that's terrific. But Rich, you did not throw us into the bottom feeder bus, did you? Because <laughs> I think if, if we're doing dollar boxes, to me, that's middle of the road. Basically, there's some good cards in there. No, I was very happy with where we spent most of our time. The man-